All right. I know I'm supposed to start with some kind of clever hook, but I don't. Chapter 23. We're going to try to finish chapter 23 and all of 24 by the end of this hour. Now, most preachers, and I've listened to a lot of sermons on Jeremiah 24, I, they, are, they cover it within 15 to 20 minutes. Um, I don't even know how that's humanly possible. So that should only be a couple of weeks for us. Okay, no, I'm joking. But we, we will, um, it may be the, cha- and I think maybe the reason some pastors cover it so quick. I mean, we could, we could get into a lot of discussions of possibly why they do this. But um, I think whenever you're working through the book of Jeremiah, if you have any time table that you're mindful of, right? Um, yeah, you gotta, at some point, you gotta start making decisions of what to kind of move forward and what kind of go through quickly, right? And for some weird reason, 24 is the chapter everybody's like, boom, done, we're next. Okay. So we'll see why. Um, I, we'll see. Even, even, I, I've got a commentary that we may utilize. Even it, it's like maybe barely a paragraph. Like, I mean, it's like nobody seems to think 24 is of anything significant. So we'll find out for ourselves. But we have to do a little bit of work on 23, okay? So the last hour, was all about an overarching problem for the entire book of Jeremiah. And the reason I spent that hour doing that is because whenever we're done with a book, I want everyone to at least never forget that Jeremiah presents some major philosophical problems, right? And we understand the entire, I always say it, where do all the philosophical problems begin? Genesis 1-1. I mean, anyone reading Genesis 1-1, you should go, wait, what is happening? What? Stop, stop, do not continue. In the beginning, God, and, this, and you just want to immediately stop the text right there. Don't do the next thing. Because the next thing is, in the beginning, God created. I know what you're getting ready to create. Okay, I know what's getting ready to happen. And it's filled with death, pain, suffering, disease. And it's a horrible, horrible decision, right? It's a horrible decision. Just stop right there. But he does. And then we understand he gives a law. And we are all... We, and everyone here, at least in this church, because we talked about law and gospel. I mean, uh, yesterday I finished the 100th episode on my teachings on law and gospel. That's over a hundred hours I have taught on law and gospel now. Okay. And I've done that in, uh, starting, I think October, October 22 is when I started. So in less than a year, I've done 100 hours of teaching on law and gospel. In this church, everyone here should be experts on it. You should, in theory. But we know that God's law is given and we cannot keep it. And that is the most baffling, confusing thing. But in Jeremiah, what the problem that we are presenting is there's three groups of people, right? There's the kings, the religious leaders, and the people, right? Now, it seems that there's a universal agreement in this church, or at least with Robert and Bobby. They seem to be very much convinced that, hey, it's the kings and the prophets that's messed this all up for these people, and the people are paying the consequences. And I think there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of truth to that. But we, but the overall, I just want to make sure everyone understands. I, I completely agree that God did speak to the people through past revelation. We're in complete agreement on that. I want to make sure everyone understands that, right? He's, he gave them the commandments. Gave them the covenant promises and gave them the promises and warnings found in Deuteronomy 27 and 28 and 29. Right? We know that. And we know first and foremost, the kings would have had access to a lot of these written documents because over, we find in the Old Testament many times it's the kings where someone discovers the word and then the king takes it and brings it to the people. Right? 
Okay, so we know the kings have some responsibility, right? And then we definitely know the prophets and the priests would have had access to information. So they would have had access to information and they were supposed to be passing it on to the people, all right? Now, at some point, the people should know at least enough to realize, I, I don't know if we should be worshiping that idol or sacrificing our children. I think, I think, you think somebody should have realized something is wrong here. You think, in, in theory. But what I, the point I want to make, and it is the philosophical problem that we have to at least acknowledge. I know we don't want to acknowledge it, but we have to acknowledge it. That at any point, what could have happened? God could have intervened at any point and spoke directly to them as he was speaking to Jeremiah. That is, that we all have to at least acknowledge that problem, right? Now, and we do know that he does send Jeremiah to the kings and the people and the priest, which is a good thing. We are glad that he does that, but you can understand how convoluted that is because previously, who should they have been listening to? The kings and the prophets and the priests. And now who should they not listen to? The kings, the prophets, and the priests. And who should now they listen to? Just this one lone prophet. And how would the people know? And so we, we have discussed that, that problem. But let's finish 23. Uh, let, let's at least finish 23 because God has a lot here to say about these false prophets. And we have uh, some things going on. So let's go to verse 16. And we're just going to try to get through all of this chapter as fast as we can. All right? Here we go. There's only one major thing I think I want to focus on that uh, a study Bible points out that we will look at. All right, you ready? Here we go. 2316. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, hearken not unto the words of the prophets that prophesy unto you. They, they make you vain. They speak a vision of their own heart and not out of the mouth of the Lord. The one thing we do know about the prophets, they are not speaking what? God's word. We know that. That's dogmatic. That is clear. God it seems God is not speaking to them. They may have thought God was speaking to them because they clearly seem to indicate that they, they're giving the word of God, but clearly God is not giving them any revelation. Verse 20, uh, 17, they say, Still unto them that despise me, the Lord hath said, please note, they're, they're claiming God is speaking, right? You shall have peace and they say, everyone walketh after the imagination of his own heart. No evil shall come upon you. Now, of course, they would be claiming, when they say that, they would be claiming that they are revealing what? God's word. They, in fact, they may even be arguing that they're quoting from what? Past revelation. Because what would they be quoting from? All the promises that was supposed to come upon Israel. Was Israel supposed to have peace? Yes. Was they supposed to have blessing? Yes. Were they supposed to have provision? Yes. Now, we do know this. Oh, well, they're not supposed to be walking after their own heart. We do know all those promises were conditional. We know that. But let's just remember, uh, the misinterpretation of Revelation is not a thing common in 2023. It's been going on forever, which, again, creates all kinds of problems, right? Verse uh, 18. For who hath stood in the counsel of the Lord and hath perceived and heard his word? Who hath marked his word and heard it? Behold, a whirlwind of the Lord is gone forth in fury, even a grievous whirlwind. It shall fall grievously upon the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord shall not return until he have executed, until he have performed the thoughts of his heart. In the latter days, you shall consider it perfectly. I have not sent the prophets, yet they ran. I have not 
spoken to them, yet they prophesied, right? But if they had stood in my counsel and had caused my people to hear my words, then they should have turned from their evil way and from the evil of their doings. Now, it is very true. What, however we want to interpret verse 22, I think, I think everyone here in this church should agree. Whatever turning back to God that would have occurred would have only been what? It had been temporary. And how do we know this? It's always been that way. And because we don't have the ability to keep God's law. I cannot stress that. That's, I, can't, I, I, I don't know if you're, I, I've tried so hard out of a hundred hours of teaching to try to explain to people why the law gospel dynamic is absolutely critical to hermeneutics because without that, some of these passages make no sense, right? But when you understand Law, 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 law. God can give them law all day. But what can law, what can the law of God not do? It can't, well, it cannot save them and it does not produce righteousness. I know every Christian you know will disagree with you. I know every church in America would tell us that we are wrong, except a few Lutheran churches, but it does not produce righteousness. What does the law produce? condemnation and it incites sin. It does not stop it. So even if they would have heard, even if there would have been a temporary returning, it would have only lasted for a few minutes because law does not do what? Get rid of the sinful nature. All right, we're about to get right, right back into a long gospel discussion, but okay. All right, I'll, I'll do that this afternoon. All right, verse 23. I, uh, uh, am I a God at hand? saith the Lord, and not a God far off? Can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him, saith the Lord? Do not I fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord? I have heard what the prophets said, what prophesy that... Okay, let me read this again. I have heard what the prophets said, that prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed, Right? God knows that they're just lying. So this seems to indicate, maybe we we put forth this question in the last hour. Maybe they're so self-deceived, they think they're actually hearing from God, but God is making it very clear, they're not, all right? How long shall this be in the heart of the prophets that prophesy lies? Yea, they are prophets of, of the deceit of their own heart. Now, let's just make it very, let's be very careful here, all right? Let's be very careful here. Because we love to then condemn them. And this has been mentioned a number, of t- a number of times. These prophets and even many of the kings, what is, their, what is the, their, their operating philosophy is that they're being motivated by the imaginations of their own hearts, the desires of their own hearts. Okay, let's make it very clear. Was that a problem for the kings in the days of Jeremiah? Was that a problem for the prophets in the day of Jeremiah? Was that a problem for the people in the days of Jeremiah? And guess who it's also it's a problem for? Everyone sitting in this room. We operate, what do, and guess what? Just what the prophets did. I want to make sure you understand this. It is very, especially for Christians, this is the worst part of being a Christian. Right? The most dangerous part of being a Christian, the most dangerous part of religion, right? This is just a, this is a historical fact. 
Religion is absolutely dangerous. And I don't care if it's Christianity. I don't care if it's Islam. All religion is dangerous because all religion allows people to do what? To follow the imaginations of their own heart and claim that they're following God. God becomes the justification for you following the imaginations of your own heart. Don't think just Islam is guilty of that. Christianity is guilty of the exact same thing and we got 2,000 years of church history to prove it. People have been murdered. People have been killed all in the name of their God and the name of Jesus. People have been burned at the stake. People have been drowned. People have been killed by the sword. People have had their heads removed all in the name of Jesus. Wars have happened. And all we have to do is, hey, I mean, we, we see, we've seen it in this country over and over and over and over. Anytime America goes to war, we act as if it is a, it is a righteous cause. And who is on our side? God! Correct? And another country fighting will say who's on their side? Their God! Because everyone can take God and do what with it? Justify the imaginations of their own heart. You have to realize the potential danger of that. People have used God to justify it. You name it. God has been used to justify anything and everything from divorce to, to rape to abusing children to hatred to bigotry to racism. I, I, I think I may have it in my notes. I, I've got a, I got a, a clipping from a newspaper. I think it was in the early 1900s. And it was a group of churches. A group of churches who put out an ad in a paper. And I have a, the, the copy of it. right? And it's a, 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 all these pastors saying, based off the word of God, we deny the right to, and then they use uh, the N-word, to, to deny the rights to those who are African American. Claiming scripture. It's been done in every age to, to promote hate. To, to, I mean, the Bible has been used over and over and over again. And you know why? Because guess what's inside of us? A sinful nature. And what better way to justify your sinful nature than to have God on your side? that impacts everything. Your sinful nature impacts how you use God and guess what else it will impact? How you interpret scripture because sometimes, you know what the real hermeneutical method is most people use? The imaginations of their own heart. And when they get mad and argue with a pastor, you can almost see it because in most cases, guess what the people will not do who want to argue? They don't want to go spend the time doing the actual study because if they did the actual study, they may have to set aside the imagination of their own heart. But it's easy just to tell someone they're wrong. And you know why they supposedly are wrong? Because you feel like they're wrong. 
And as a pastor, how do you deal with that kind of argument? Well, you're, you're, you think I'm wrong? I think you're wrong. And guess, and guess who's the ultimate authority? Who's the ultimate authority? Don't tell me God. That's a church answer. It's self, okay? Don't even pretend that it's God. If you think God is the ultimate authority, you're a liar, okay? I'm sorry. God has not been the ultimate authority in the church since I don't know when. Right? In fact, in the nation of Israel, who's supposed to be the ultimate authority? God. Who's the ultimate authority? The people. The imagination of their... Isn't that the problem over and over and over again? Okay? It's like, how many motorcycles just went by? Okay. All right. What verse did we just stop at? We'll start. We'll go back to verse 25. I have heard what the prophet said that prophesy lies in my name saying, I have dreamed. I have dreamed. How long shall this be in the heart of the prophets that prophesy lies? Yet they are prophets of the deceit of their own heart. I, you should, you should just circle that. And not because you want to condemn prophets. You want to be worried about yourself. Because we're, we all do that. Just remember, God, the concept of God is dangerous. I cannot stress it enough. The concept of God is Look, oh, I'm, okay, good. I got no kids here, so, so none of you parents can get mad, okay? But I guarantee you, every parent in this room has utilized God as a weapon to get the kids to do what you want. A parent doesn't like a certain kind of music. Guess who magically is on the parent side? God. A parent doesn't like a particular kind of movie. Guess who is is magically on their side? God. Why is God always on the side of the parent? What if the kids say, no, God's on my side. You're wrong. Oh, you wouldn't like that, would you? So when a parent uses God as a weapon against a child, there's some, that's some twisted, messed up stuff. I know we're told to almost do that within Christianity, but I saw that happen to me my whole Christian life. When, when the pastor's wife at First Baptist Church, Tuscola, smashed the window out of the front door of the parsonage, walked in, grabbed me by my ear, pulled me out of the parsonage and says, I cannot have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ because I was listening to Foreigner. Okay. I'm sorry. How about, lady, you back off, get your hands off me, and you shouldn't be smashing the window of the house that I was told I could live in because you don't like my music and you think who's on your side? I think the law's not even on your side. That's some messed up stuff. I've watched that happen over and over and over in Christianity. Pastors can do that. Everyone can do that. We can't can't allow ourselves to allow God to become the, the hammer that we use to smash anyone and everyone we disagree with. Verse 27, okay, I know this is going to make me super popular, but that's okay. We have to deal with these realities. Which think to cause, so, so they're following the deceit of their own heart. Okay, that doesn't end in a period, and it continues. Which think to cause my people to forget my name by their dreams, which tell every man to his neighbor as their fathers have forgotten my name for Baal. Now, now he's mad at the prophets because he says that they're getting the people to forget his name. 
Now, that, that's, that's messed up. And the prophets are getting the people to forget their name because they're coming with the, they're coming to the people claiming that they're speaking in the name of the true God, but leading people to a false God. The prophet that hath a dream, let him tell a dream, and he that hath my word, let him speak my words faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat, saith the Lord? Is not my word like as a Fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces. He's contrasting the words of the prophets, which are nothing more than chaff, which is just thrown away, right? But his word is compared to being wheat. And what else is it compared to? Fire, a hammer that breaketh the rock to pieces. Everybody see that? Therefore, behold, I am against the prophet, saith the Lord, that still my words, every one from his neighbor. Behold, I'm against the prophet, saith the Lord, that use their tongues and say, he saith. I want to make sure you get that. The prophets are doing what? They're claiming to speak in the name of God. Does everyone see that? That is the problem. Now, either the prophets know they're not or they are convinced that they are. Now, I feel, who do I feel bad for in all of this? I feel bad for the people. Because in most cases, who do they have to rely on? The prophets and the kings. Now, I do agree that the people should have known at least something up to this point. They should have at least known the Ten Commandments. They should have at least known something. But if the prophets are supposedly hearing directly from God... It's hard to go, well, well, wait a minute, God said this. Well, if the prophets are saying God just said this, what do you do? Do you throw out what God previously said? Isn't that the, isn't that the weird world of the charismatic world in 2023? Right? One prophet says one thing, another prophet says another thing, another prophet says another thing, and it just goes on and 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 on. Okay, all right. Look, verse 32, we're getting close, we're getting close. Behold, I am against them that prophesy false dreams, saith the Lord, and do tell them that cause my people to err by their lies and by their lightness. Yet I sent them not nor commanded them, therefore they shall not profit this people at all, saith the Lord. So God even knows that they're not going to help the people. These prophets are not going to profit the people. And when the people or the... And when the people or the prophet or a priest shall ask thee, saying, What is the burden of the Lord? Thou shall say unto them, What burden? I will even forsake you, saith the Lord. Now, we get to verse 33. We have this word burden, right? This word burden. Now, I'm going to rely here on a study Bible because they, they think there's a play on words going on here. All right? So we will at least consider this. All right? And I, I have to just go through this relatively quick only because of time, all right? So here we go. So 23, 33 to 38, right? Chapter 23, 33 to 38. Everybody see the word burden, right? The word burden is used at least how many times in verses 33 to 38? Eight times? Okay, that's a lot. Now, what do we always do when we see, as a good Bible student, when you see the word being used over and over and over and over again? We've got to stop and go, okay, what just happened here? Right? Now, I haven't looked throughout the entire book of Jeremiah. If, you, if, we, want, if we have time, somebody want to look up on the electronic concordance and see how many times the word burden is used in the book of Jeremiah? 
I didn't even think about looking this up prior. Just hit me right now. That's a lot of times, is it not? How many times is the word burden used in the book of Jeremiah? See who gets an answer first. Whoever gets it first wins a prize. What is it? What's the answer? Do what? Eight verses. Okay. And most of those occur where? Okay. How many times? 17? Four verses. Okay. How many times in those four verses? Four times. So, in the entire book of Jeremiah, which is what, 52 chapters, right? Most of the occurrence of one word happens where? In chapter 23. Eight times in 23, four times in 17. All right, that's, that. as any good Bible student, you should stop, whenever you're reading the Bible and you see something like that, let me just make it very clear, and you don't stop to figure out why. You're, you're really kind of just wasting your time in reading. And this is very important to kind of figure out. They believe there's a, a play on words going on here, all right? So I'm going to read what they have to say. They believe that the Septuagint and the uh, Latin Vulgate gives us some clues here, but I'm just going to read directly what they have to say, and then you can, we can see what, if we catch this or not. Everybody ready? The word burden comes from a Hebrew verbal root, meaning to lift up. All instances of the Hebrew noun imply a burden for all our judgment passages. So, typically, it's used to, when you refer to a burden, you're referring to what? Judgment. Everybody okay with that? Yeah? Okay. One person is. Everybody else okay with that? Okay. So when the people or the false prophets asked, What is the burden of the Lord? Everybody look at verse 33. Do you see that question? What is the burden of the Lord? They they are saying that that's the people or the prophets asking that question, what is the burden of the Lord? Right? Everybody okay with that? All right, here we go. The answer was a short retort given in the Latin Vulgate and the Greek Septuagint. You are the burden is how it is referenced in the Latin Vulgate and the Septuagint. The pawn of the two senses of burden, prophetic burden of judgment and the burden of trying to speak to stubborn people recurs throughout the section. That there's two kinds of burdens being articulated here. Burden number one is a prophetic burden. What is a prophetic burden? It's speaking, it's a judgment. It's a word of judgment. And make sure everybody understands that. What is prophetic burden? Words of judgment. That's, why is it a burden? Because does anyone want to deliver a message of judgment? 
If I, if I come to, I know sometimes people in the pew don't understand this. If a pastor comes here and preaches something hard and goes really hard at the people, a lot of people think, well, that's just the pastor ranting and raving and he's just, he, he's just in a bad mood. No, usually the pastor does not want to be doing that and, and usually has regrets to having to do that because he knows immediately what's going to happen. Someone's going to get mad or someone's going to leave the church. But sometimes you feel like you've got no choice. We've got to deal with this, right? So, but there's another kind of burden. There's the burden of preaching God's word when it's a a word that's harsh, but there's another kind of burden. That's preaching to people who will what? Not listen. Who will just argue. They won't do study. They won't pay attention. Or when you're trying to preach, you know what the worst is? When you're trying to preach and you realize that someone in the, in the room, especially when you're in a small church, there's nothing worse than when you're trying to preach and you know someone is disagreeing with you and you look back and you know what they're doing? They're having their own personal Bible study. They're looking, they're writing things down. And you, and you just know, as a pastor, you just want to stop and go, let me know when you're finished. Because you know what's going to happen. Almost directly after, they're coming right. They're coming right to me, and they're going to say, you're wrong, because in five minutes while you were talking, I proved you wrong. I'm like, whoa, I'm glad you gave it five minutes. You do realize you could study the Bible, I don't know, at home? Like, you understand how that could be a burden? Okay, That could be a real burden, because you really want to just go, come on, tell me, tell me what I did wrong. Come on, show me what I did wrong. that's a burden. Well, here, there's this play on words. So let's see if we can uh, indicate these, all right? This all starts in which verse? 33. And when the people or the prophet or a priest shall ask thee, saying, what is the burden of the Lord? Thou shalt say unto them, what burden? I will even forsake you, saith the Lord. Now, in the other translation, Septuagint, Volga, it says, you're the burden. How does it translate in the NIV? Okay. Okay, what oracle? Okay. All right. So, so uh, now this is the difference between the, the Masoretic text and the Septuagint and the Latin Vulgate. Remember I told you that's a major issue with the book of Jeremiah, that the, the Latin and the Septuagint don't agree with the Masoretic. Okay, all right. Verse 34, and as for the prophet and the priest and the people, they shall say, the burden of the Lord, I will even punish that man and his house. Thus shall you say every one to his neighbor and every one to his brother, what hath the Lord answered and what hath the Lord spoken? And the burden of the Lord shall ye mention no more, for every man's word shall be his burden. For you have perverted the words of the living God, of the Lord, uh, uh, of the Lord of hosts, our God. Now, ultimately, it gets around to kind of saying the same thing, right? You're going to be arguing about the burden of God's word. Your words are going to be the burden, right? So, in a roundabout way, He is coming back on to them to some level. Okay, all right. Verse thirty-seven. Thus shall thou say to the prophet, What hath the Lord answered thee? And what hath the Lord spoken? But since you say the burden of the Lord, therefore thus saith the Lord, because you say this word, the burden of the Lord, and I have sent unto you, you shall not say the burden of the Lord. Therefore, behold, I 
Even I will utterly forsake you and I will forsake you and the city that I gave you and your fathers and cast you out of my presence. And I will bring an everlasting reproach upon you and a perpetual shame and you which shall not be forgotten. Pretty serious. In other words, it's almost like if you think my word is a burden, well, your word is a burden to me and you're going to be burdened with the judgment that I pronounced. There's a a major kind of play on words here with it. Do you get kind of the, the general sense? Judgment is coming upon them. All right, now, we've got 10 verses in the next chapter. All right, 10 verses. What do you think we can do with this? All right. Now, before we look at this chapter, I want everyone to go back to chapter 21, verse 8, because I think 21, 8 and following is key to 24. You may not see this. I don't think other pastors may necessarily agree with me, but that's okay. Now, remember, I believe 21, 8 is one of the most beautiful, powerful pictures in the entire book, right? So remember, everybody remember what happened here? No, nobody remembers this. We, we, we spent a long time on this in a sermon. Actually, multiple sermons and I think podcasts. And I don't know. We've covered this a lot. Right? 21.8. And unto this people thou shalt say, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. There's two ways. One way is the way of life. One way is the way of death. Now, what? what is the way of life? He that abideth in the city shall die by the sword and by the famine and by the pestilence. But he that goeth out and falleth to the Chaldeans and besiege you, you shall live and his life shall be unto him for a prey. Now remember, from a historical narrative perspective, that makes absolutely zero sense, does it not? Makes no sense. But And because it makes no sense from a historical perspective, it is true historically that's how it was supposed to work. If they stayed in the city, the walls, the protection, they were going to die. Those who left and said, okay, I'm going straight to the Babylonians. I'm not going to fight. I'm not going to argue. I'm just going to go give myself over to the very captives coming to get me. They would live. And remember, I told you it was a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful picture of salvation. If you hold on to your own works, to your own efforts, to your own security, your own protection, you will die. You got to leave your works, leave your own righteousness, and go to the very one coming to bring judgment upon you. Right? It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. All right? Keep that in mind because I think it's going to come into play here. Now, a little background. Well, we'll read a little background here. All right? Here we go. In 597 BC, the Babylonians deported King Jehoiachin, also called Jeconiah or Kaniah, along with many of the nobles and key citizens, leaving only the poor people to work the land. It was the beginning of the end of Judah, and no doubt Jeremiah was greatly distressed. Okay, remember, though, if you don't remember, Jeconiah creates major problems. Did an entire series on the curse of Jeconiah. We talked about him in 22, right? Major, major, major problems there, okay? Because Jeconiah is cursed. No one from his line is supposed to show up on the throne of David. However, Jeconiah appears where? In the genealogy of Christ, okay? You know, it creates all kinds of problems, all right? But that 
That's a bad situation. 597, the Babylonians deport King Jeconiah, uh, King Jehoiachin, all the different names he's referred to as, and it leaves the poor people to work the land. It's the beginning of the end. Now, this is how this commentary sets up 24. You ready? Knowing that his servant needed encouragement, the Lord gives him a vision. So their approach is, chapter 24, is there to encourage Jeremiah. That's what they think. Let's read it and see what happens. Okay, you ready? Here we go. The Lord showed me and behold, two baskets of figs were set before the temple of the Lord after that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the princes of Judah, when the carpenters and smiths from Jerusalem had brought them to Babylon. All right, so the commentary is right about who's, who's been deported, right? Now, this is all happening, but in, in the midst of this happening, or after this is happening, somewhere correlation to this happening. Now, remember, this is a true historical event that's happening, right? They are actually deported. This is the beginning of the end. God shows whom? The Lord showed me, Jeremiah, two baskets of figs that were before the temple of the Lord. Now, I know what you're thinking. I don't know how much comfort I would get from this. Remember, the commentary says this is for comfort, right? I'm supposed to go, whoo, okay, good. Thank you for showing me two baskets of figs. Okay, what in the world does this mean? Everybody want to find out? Well, I hope so, because that's the only answer that's acceptable. All right, here we go. Verse two. One basket had very good figs, even like the figs that are first ripe, and the other basket had very, and the King James uses naughty figs. Okay. They're naughty. They're naughty. Bad, bad. Okay. What the uh, NIV translates it how? Poor figs? Poor figs? I don't know if that's helpful. What, what, what do you think this is referencing? What kind of figs? Rotten figs, there we go. They're rotten, okay? Which could not be eaten, for they were so bad. They were so bad. They were so naughty, you couldn't eat them, okay, right? So, yeah, they were rotten, all right? So, two baskets. One basket has what kind of figs? Good. The other one? Bad, all right. Now, remember, this is supposed to be some kind of encouragement. I don't know where the encouragement's coming from. This is how at least one commentary is approaching it. Verse 3. Then said the Lord unto me, what seest thou? I always love that when that happens a lot sometimes in the uh, minor prophets, right? God shows them a vision and then says, what do you see, right? And then sometimes I want to say, nobody has a clue what he sees because this makes absolutely no sense. But maybe this one makes more sense. You ready? Right? Jeremiah, and I said, figs, the good figs, very good. And the evil, very evil, that cannot be eaten, they are so evil. Now, it's interesting that, at least in the King James, it's translated as evil. How does the NIV translate it in verse uh, 3? Poor. Okay, back to poor. Okay. Um, I... I, I, poor seems better than e- evil. Even it's almost like he's making a moral judgment between the two. And I don't think, I don't know, I don't think Jeremiah is instigating a moral judgment between the two. I think he's like, these are good. And the, 
Yeah, so I think I don't. I don't think it's a moral judgment. He's making a judgment upon the quality of them as fruit, right? As as figs, right? Okay, all right. Verse four. Again, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, "Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel: Like these good figs, so I will acknowledge them that are carried away captive of Judah, whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans for their good." Okay, 24-5, okay. So who are the good figs? The people who go out. You see why I went back to 21? You see why I went back to 21? All right, the good ones seem to be the ones that listened and did what? Left and went right to the Chaldeans. Now, God indicated that it was for their good. Now, we got to think this through here, all right? Now, if I go, if I go preacher, if I go typical preacher, right? If I go typical, you know, like every other church, then how would I preach this? Well, you see, this was chastisement, and chastisement is a good thing, and we should uh, we should appreciate when God chastises us, right? Okay, I could go typical preacher, all right? Maybe that's true. Maybe there's some truth to that, but maybe, maybe the good here is referencing what? If you would have stayed, you would have died. The good here is not so much some spiritual chastisement that's occurring that's going to make them better people. Do they come out better people? Well, a generation comes out, but that generation ends up doing what? Going in captivity. So, so I mean, I mean, everyone's like they they went there for seventy years to be purged of their sins. I, well, they're all going to die in captivity, and the next generation is going to do what? Okay, they they come they come out and they immediately do what? In fact, it's going to be the the next the previous generations who's going to literally kill Jesus. So yeah, you know, I don't know, you know, I don't know how great they came out, but okay. But I know I know I'm not supposed to do that because I'm supposed to be preaching a, a sermon. And when you preach sermons, you don't really care about truth. You just got to give people a little spiritual food so that everyone, you know, can go. Oh, that was a good sermon, Pastor. And oh, I learned something, and I was so encouraged. Who cares if any of it's true? But okay, I disagree. I just think maybe this good is just very. It's kind of very practical, right? Hey, they went out for their good because if they would have stuck around, they'd have died. I see it in a much more practical way instead of going all super spiritual with it. You can go all super spiritual with it. That's okay because everyone emailing me is going to tell me I'm wrong anyway. So I, I don't care, all right? But here we go, right? So, so far, so good. Verse six, for I will set mine eyes upon them for good, and I will bring them again to this land, and I will build them, and I will not pull them down, and I will plant them, and will not pluck them up. Now, verse 6 is where you start having major, major problems, okay? This becomes the never-ending issues of eschatology. So, so just, I need you to listen to me carefully, all right? Listen to me carefully, all right? When it comes to the Bible, right, if you're not aware of this, right, Christianity, and in some ways Christianity to me is nothing more, it's just a game, right? And here's the game, right? You go off to Bible college, you go off to seminary, and even though you, you're taught, you think that you're actually studying the Bible, you're not studying the Bible, okay? What you're being given is a system, and then that system is placed onto the Bible. Are you to question the system? 
No, 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 no. You are to now stand behind the pulpit and give the system. And you give the system in a very careful way. You don't ask too many questions. You don't make it difficult. You make it simple. And you stay true to that system. You stay true to your team. And if you stay true to your team, then you find people who come to your church who are part of that team. And they want to hear their team being represented from the pulpit, right? Okay, right. And so I just keep preaching the team message. And then I can network with other churches who are part of our team. And then we just all stay on the team. Nobody really cares about the text. Nobody really cares about truth. They just want to hear their team. And they want it done in three nice little points. They want a good opening introduction. They want to conclude. Oh, the whole thing just makes me want to just burn churches to the absolute ground. Not literally. Okay, figuratively speaking. All right, because it just makes me mad. It's just a game. It's just a game. And you can't question your team. So guess what? There's certain teams. Now, Stacy, I was talking to Stacy about this and she made some little smart aleck mark. Well, in our church, we, we, can't, we don't even know what team we're on. We don't even have time to buy a jersey because we're already switching teams. Okay, well, whatever, okay? That's fine. You should be grateful that we don't have jerseys, okay? You should be grateful we don't have a team. But there are certain teams, right? And these teams have a system that's imposed upon the scriptures, right? What are the teams? What are the teams? We got the reform team, right? And the reform team is, we got to make sure we stay very true to the tulip, right? We got to make sure we stay very true to the doctrines of election, predestination, all of that, right? And in most cases, Many reform, you got to stay true to the team of infant baptism, right? And in many, you got to stay true to what else? An amillennial view, right? You got to stay very true to an all. Because if you're not, if you if you question infant baptism, I mean, that's why many uh, reform Baptists, most reform people say reform Baptists are not really reformed. And so we're thrown out of the reform camp because you're not. So so if you're reform Baptist, you're really you're you're. You, you, you can't win, right? Because reformed people come walking in and are like, hey, I, you know, oh, we want to be a part of your church. And then, then they decide, well, when you, they hear that you're against infant baptism, which I don't know why they would walk into a Baptist church not realizing that, right? Okay, but, they're, but I thought you were reformed. I'm reformed, but I don't believe in infant baptism. Well, you're not following the team. So they will leave and go to a Presbyterian church because, right, you know, you got to be on that team. Oh, the whole thing is just, I just hate it. I, I don't. I don't know. I wish someone would have just told me when you become a Christian, you have to join a team because I would have just said I'm not going to become a Christian. I would have just avoided the whole mess, right? Because I never want to be on anybody's stinking team. I don't want to be on anybody's team, right? I would prefer to be on my own team, okay? Because it's, a, it's the best team I can find, right? It's the best team I can find because every other team, I got, it's just garbage. You just got to go. You got to follow these little rules, right? So if you're Reformed Baptist, you're not Reformed enough. Now, you know what's going to happen, but you're too reformed for the non-reformed. So now you can't win, right? So the reformed people won't come to your church because you're not reformed enough, right? And then the non-reformed people won't come to your church because you're too reformed. Oh, man. You can't win, right? So, so, so you, you're, but if you're going to be anywhere in the reform world, you know what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to, you got to preach a certain way. And we know when it comes to eschatology, what can you, if you're going to be anywhere close to the reform world, what team can you not even talk about? 
You can't talk about the team that has a D on their jerseys. You cannot even get near dispensationalism because that's the wrong team, right? So if you're in the reform camp, what team, what jersey do you wear? It has a C. Covenant theology, right? And if you're not... Okay, I don't even know what team. And if you're not reformed, you typically have a D for dispensationalist, right? And so you got to follow. Now this comes into play because right here we got some we got some serious promises here, right? We got some serious promises. In fact, late last night I was listening to a sermon, Presbyterian. It was like, don't say that we replace the church with Israel because really it was never Israel in the first place because it's always been. One people of God. It's always been the church. And of course, then these promises are not for Israel. They are for the church. But of course, the curses are for Israel. Okay, right. So, but if you even question any of this, you're not going to be on the right team. And this is why I always get in trouble because I tick off every team. I tick off every team because I don't care about your stinking team. I don't care about it. You're like, well, no, no, no. It's this way because you've chosen a team. When it comes to the Bible, do not allow a team to tell you what it is. If you're on the Lordship team, you can't question the Lordship team. If you're in the quote-unquote easy believism team, you can't qu- I'm so sick of that. And then when people come up to argue, it's like, oh, wow, you've given me such a great argument. I haven't read it. I don't know. In MacArthur's book, page 8, could you come up with an actual argument? Right? Because all it is is they're giving you, they're regurgitating a team. They don't like what you say. They go home, find an article. Oh, pastor's wrong. I know, because you looked up MacArthur. I should have known. I should have went with the Pope. But guess who, guess who doesn't, guess whose team I'm not on? I'm not on MacArthur's team. I don't care about his team. Guess what team I'm not on? I'm not on the lordship team. I'm not on the non-lordship team. I'm trying to be on the team of the text. You've got to realize so much of Christianity is just a big game. You, impo- you just impose the team on the text. And then guess what you're to do? Everyone just go along with it. I hate that. I loathe that. I want to deal with the text. Well, we got, a, we got a text here, right? And we got some issues, do we not? What's the issue here with this text? Okay, who's the promises to? Well, let's just look at the promise, right? What's the promise? Like these good figs, I will acknowledge them that they are carried away captive of Judah when I have sent them out of the place uh, into the land of Chaldeans for their good. For I will set my eyes upon whom? The good figs. Right? Those who left the city and did what God told them to do, right? Right? And I will bring them again to this land. I will build them and not pull them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. And I will give them a heart to know me that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God for they shall return unto me with their. Now stop right there. Do we not have problems? We got problems. We got problems. What's the problem? All right. Because Diane is on team D. She's on team dispensational, right? She's like, this has not happened. 
right? Now, some, Team C, may come along and say, it did happen, Diane. It happened in the new covenant in the church. Come on, be smart. Stop, stop reading left behind and being so dumb. Right? Because reformed people typically are very derogatory towards anyone who's dispensational, right? Thank you. Thank you. This doesn't even feel, this doesn't even work in the church. Doesn't even work in the church. There would be one church and everybody would be basically sinless. It's not, it doesn't even work there. Did it work? Does this apply to Israel or Judah when they came out of Babylonian captivity? Absolutely not. Because it says they would never be plucked up. Okay. They, they, well, they're, they're already plucked up in a sense when Rome takes control, right? So even before that, and then, I don't know about you, but 70 AD, I think they're kind of plucked up. Dispersed completely out of the land, destroyed, destroyed, they don't exist. And then, I don't know, what Hitler did to six million of them, I think is considered pretty messed up, Right? So, we got a problem. Now, guess what? I don't care. I don't care about your team. I care about the text. This is a promise that I would argue has what? Never been fulfilled. So, either one, God lied, or two, it's got to happen in the future. Right? Does that make sense? Because I don't care about the team. Now, what happens, verse 7? We're going to make it. We're going to make it. Just, we got to go quick. Okay, I will give them a heart to know me. I'm the Lord. They should be my people. I will be their God, for they will return to me with their whole heart. We know that that has never happened. It's not happened in the church. It's not happened anywhere. None of us has returned to God with our whole heart. You know why? Because we still have a sinful nature. And because we have a sinful nature, our whole heart can never belong to God because we still have a sinful nature. What would be required for us to be able to return to God with our whole heart? The removal of sinful nature. Now, we've only got a couple of verses left. And as the evil figs, which cannot be eaten, they are so evil, surely, thus saith the Lord, so will I give Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and his princes, and the residue of Jerusalem that remain in the land, and them that dwell in the land of Egypt. These are the people who did what? Stayed behind. Okay, right? Or possibly taken before. All right? And I will deliver them to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth for their hurt to be a reproach and a proverb, a taunt and a curse and all places whether I shall drive them. And I will send the sword, the famine, and the pestilence among them till they be consumed from off the land that I gave unto them and to their fathers. That's why I think it's absolutely ridiculous for someone to preach this as, oh, see, the people went to Babylonian captivity. They were just chastised and it was for their own spiritual good. No, the good there was they're not going to die. Okay, that's the good. It's a very practical good. So what do we do with this chapter? What's the main lesson screaming at us in this chapter? that sometimes God's ways are completely contradictory to our ways. Because we would think that the right way would have been to do what? To stay. Stay with your king. Right? Zedekiah stayed. Now he gets what? 
He gets deported and his eyes gets torn out. And like you, you, all the bad things that happened. Remember we talked about that in 22? You see why I spent all of that time in 22 now? What, two, three hours going over those kings? Because I knew, I, 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 I realized that we had to deal with those kings in some way, shape, or form. Okay, so, but the, the message here is, hey, the answer to their, at least to their temporary problem, goes against everything in our... Look, can you imagine telling the American church, no, 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 no. Don't fight those coming for you. Submit unto them. Can you... How well do you think that would go over in the American church in 2023? Not well at all. We should stand. We should fight. Well... Here, they they were not to stand and fight. They were to do what? Surrender and submit. And submit to which kind of authority? A completely ungodly and pagan authority. I know we don't like that. But it's really kind of a common theme throughout the Bible, is it not? That we submit ourselves even to an ungodly authority. And you say, well, we could suffer. And guess who would be the one wanting you to suffer? God. But those who stay and fight, what's going to happen? It it says everything there at the end. What's going to happen? They're going to be driven out, famine. It doesn't say sword, pestilence. Yeah, I mean, basically all these horrible things are going to happen. You see all those horrible things listed there at the end of chapter 24? So, how is this an encouragement to Jeremiah? I got two minutes and I have to stop. How is this an encouragement to Jeremiah? That the encouragement is, hey, for those who are going off into captivity, you did, you made the right choice. You made the right decision. You went. You, that's the right thing to go. Go with them. Those who stay behind, they're going to suffer. The encouragement isn't that, hey, it, it's a, now there is an encouragement for some kind of future return and they do return partially, right? And w- from a prophetic standpoint, what we typically say is that that part, that coming out of Babylonian captivity was a partial fulfillment and say, if that happened, how did it happen? Literally. literally. Oh, good point. That means the rest of the promise has to be fulfilled literally. That's the key. That's the key. Now, what we're going to do, well, we have to stop for now, but just so that you know where we're going to possibly be going whenever we figure out how we're going to, we're going to, we'll probably do, we'll keep working on Jeremiah a little bit. I mean, I mean, obviously Wednesday will be Jeremiah normally, but once we get to the end of August, whatever's left of Jeremiah, I will probably move to just one hour or maybe two hours a week, right? Um, And then we're going to transition and then we're going to do a full-blown study on dispensationalism. All right? We're going to do the history of it, the origins of it, and then what the system actually teaches. Well, we guess what we will do? Will I criticize it? Oh, I know. Isn't that going to be bad? Because that's going to make the dispensationalist mad at me, right? Will I then at times use the dispensationalism to criticize the covenant? Yes, I will. And that will tick them off. Guess what? I don't really care. I don't really care. I don't care. What, whatever my, my what, however long I have left in any kind of ministry, I'm just going to go down swinging because I'm not going to 
bow down to people's teams. I'm not going to bow down to people's teams. I know that's what you're supposed to do. I know, and a roundabout way, I know that, that logic, human logic would just say, just pick a team, stay with the team, and then give everyone three little points and be done. Don't ask difficult questions and don't struggle. But I, I refuse to do that. I refuse to do it. And obviously, I know from a human perspective that my way has failed. Look, I know my way has failed. I mean, look around. My way has failed. I know that. And that's, I, it's, it's, it's sad that that's the case because in my brain, I thought it was going to work. I thought that there'd be all these people who want this and they desire, but nobody wants it. They all talk a big game until they get it. And then they guess what they want. Can you just give me a sermon? I just want a sermon. I just want a sermon. Well, go get your sermons. But I'm sick of sermons. Because here's what we, I know. 2,000 years of church history. And guess what I've heard from the 1980s all the way to 2023? The church is theologically illiterate. The church is biblically illiterate. Guess what we've had in all of that time? Small groups, small groups, small groups. Every kind of Bible under the sun. Uh, we've had, I mean, we've had sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon. And guess what all the sermons haven't done? Fix the problem. Because sermons are nothing more than canned presentations to make people and following all the rules of speech so that you get three little points. But guess what you never actually get? The text. Because you're too busy being fed a system. I can approach Jeremiah and I can go through some of these chapters quickly by just giving you the system that tells me to approach the chapter in this way. But I'm not going to do that. We're going to deal with the problems. And guess what we did with 23? Did we not deal with all the possible problems? I think the book is filled with problems. I'm going to ask those questions. 24, I think it's pretty straightforward, but that promise right there is the thing that creates all the controversy. And if I'm covenant, I just say, oh, don't, hey, those promises are for us. And the new covenant. Well, any reasonable person will go, wait a minute, that doesn't even sound like the church. And someone else may go, well, wait a minute. We know at least the partial fulfillment of that was literal for Judah. It wasn't for the church. And then the, the reform people say, well, no, no, see, you see, when you think Israel, don't ever think of a nation. Just think of God's people. It's always been spiritual. Whatever, just stop. And, it, and we, we went, we've covered in this church. We looked up every use of the word Israel. And we realized that just doesn't make any sense. I, th- I think we were fair with that, right? So we'll, we'll press on. And we'll see. But the goal is from, well, this afternoon, I need to finish some long gospel stuff. But starting tomorrow uh, on the podcast, every day, probably multiple hours, I'm going to be going from chapter 25 to 52 and within three to four days. Now here, like Wednesday, we'll start chapter 25, right? And then Sunday, well, Sunday, what's the date of Sunday, next Sunday? Oh, we're in September. Okay, well then we'll just, we'll move one hour to doing further work in Jeremiah and then we'll start dispensationalism. 101, all right? That's the plan. I gotta get, I gotta get my Schofield Bible that I ordered. I need that. So we'll probably start with an unboxing of Schofield. Okay, okay. Because, well, he's the, he's the man, right? If you're gonna say dispensationalism, who do you refer to? 
Schofield and Darby, right? I mean, that's where the only people names are the Plymouth Separatist Movement, right? That's where a lot of people say it comes from, is the Plymouth Separatist Movement. So we'll, we'll go back to that. But, but it'll be kind of interesting because while we're doing dispensationalism, the rest of Jeremiah will fit in perfectly. See, 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 there's sometimes a method to my madness, right? All right, All right let's pray. Perhaps sometimes, all right. Lord God, we come before you this afternoon. Lord, we admit that if we lived at the time of Jeremiah and you told us to leave the city and to go out to the ones bringing death and judgment, we probably would not have listened. We'd have stayed in the city because we would have went with our ways and the imagination of our own heart. Forgive us because we still do that today. Let us learn to listen to you and not to ourselves and forgive us when we fail. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,